service. And I wanted to take a little time tonight and cover something that I feel is beneficial to all of us. But before I do that, I want to set the groundwork with two rules, if you will, and these aren't hard and fast. Maybe I should say two principles to keep in mind going forward as you do your own Bible study, as you're reading the Word for yourself in your own devotion time, as you spend time with God. Number one, and this is easy for us to overlook, but it's incredibly important. Please understand that the Bible is, for the most part, narrative, which means that it is a collection of stories. Now, why would I point that out? You're looking at me like, duh, we knew that. <laughs> Wait, what? There's stories in the Bible? Okay, very simple concept, but here's why it's important. In the Western world, the primary way that we learn is through very direct teaching. When you go to school as a child, and then on into middle school, and then high school, and even on into college, we are predominantly taught a lecture-style format. You enroll in a course, you expect someone, I'm doing it tonight, to stand up front, and they are going to teach you information. And most likely, it's going to be very linear, and it's going to be point one, and then point two, and three, A, B, C, etc. And you are expected to follow along and take good notes and go home and memorize the information. And this is how we learn in the Western world. Does this sound familiar? Does this look like practically every class you have ever taken in any sign of size of education? Because that's the way we approach learning in the Western world. And that's not wrong. It's not right. It just is. However, can anybody point me in the Bible to the book of repentance? How about second baptism, chapter 2? It doesn't work that way. How come? Because the Bible is not set up that way. Because it's an Eastern document. And in the East, they do not typically learn the way that we do in the West. The primary mode of teaching in the East, and I use East in the broadest sense of the word. I'm talking from Egypt to China, okay? In the East, the primary mode of learning is through narrative, or what we would call story. You see this, we make fun of these tropes and these ideas, even in our, in our stories, in our movies, and anything else. You know, you've got the, the, the wise, older uh, rabbi, or the, the, the wise, old kung fu master, or whatever it is, I don't care, some caricature from the East, and you ask them a question, and you get a story in response. You've seen this in all kinds of things, right? Because it's very true of these cultures. Collectively, they tend to learn by teaching through story. Now, why am I pointing that out here? Because your Bible is predominantly a collection of stories. The entire Bible is meant for instruction. And it's easy for us at times to think of things as Sunday school stories things I learned about when I was a kid, and these are a collection of stories that I find interesting. And yes, they are stories, but the primary purpose there is to teach you something. So everything you read in your Bible, every story that's in your Bible is there, and it was carefully preserved for a specific reason because you were meant to learn something from that story. There are no stories in the Bible that are just there to be there. Every one of them was carefully selected 
preserved by God to teach us something. So anytime you are reading a narrative passage, you're reading a story selection in the Bible, you should be thinking, what am I supposed to learn from this? You should be thinking, what is the example that I should draw from this? Sometimes they're negative examples. Sometimes the story is preserved. And by the way, this is a different idea, but it's also important. Just because it's been preserved in the Bible doesn't mean that it's endorsed. Okay? Because God preserved a lot of very terrible, horrible choices in the biblical stories. That does not mean that he endorses them. But they're there for a reason. And so you read these, and sometimes you read this, and you think, that is absolutely terrible. And that's the point. You're supposed to learn from this, I should not behave this way. And there are other times you read something in the Bible, and it's supposed to be screaming at you, if you're paying attention, you should copy this behavior. And the beautiful thing about the biblical narrative is it's full of ups and downs, and good people and bad people, and righteous people and unrighteous people, and even better, righteous people who make horrible, stupid mistakes and God still works with them. Righteous people who make good decisions and bad decisions. And all through all of this put together, I want to use a big fancy word, the meta-narrative running from the beginning in Genesis all the way through to Revelation is this idea that you're supposed to be learning from these examples. And these are people just like you. And they are faced with situations just like you. And they had to make decisions in all kinds of circumstances. And you're supposed to learn you're supposed to be discipled from these examples. So, point number one, learn from story and recognize all story in Scripture is there for a reason and it was to teach you a lesson, sometimes multiple lessons. And then the second thing to learn from that is don't overlook the simple stuff because sometimes these stories are so simple and they are so familiar to us that we think, oh, I know that. And you're doing your own reading time in scripture and you're spending time with God and you come across a story. And let's be fair, how many of you are reading your Bible and you come to a passage you're very, very familiar with and you kind of skim right over it, right? You read it, but, but you're reading it and it's almost cursory because you've read it many, many times before. I would challenge you, especially with those stories, slow down, make yourself slow down, read those stories extra slow and see if anything else stands out to you because a lot of times the smallest the simplest the most familiar stories are the ones that have incredible depth to them so having said all of that tonight i want to take a few minutes and we're going to look at three very familiar passages from the old testament but we're going to look at them from the idea, what can I be learning from these stories? And not only that, you'll realize as we do this, there's a lot of lessons in here. And I'm just pointing out a few simple things. Because most of the time, these stories are multi-layered. And this doesn't have to be mysterious. It doesn't have to be overly complex. The Bible was meant to be readily and easily available to all of us so we can just pick it up. We can read these stories for ourselves and let the Holy Spirit speak into our life. And having said that, one of the things that fascinates me when I look at the Old Testament patriarchs, these leaders in the Old Testament, 
I see over and over and over this idea that God invites them conversation with him. And so tonight, for a few minutes, I just want to talk about this idea that God invites discourse. Another way to say that is God is inviting us into conversation with him. So let's turn to our first passage. We're going to jump into Genesis chapter 18. This is right in the middle of a story. Again, probably everyone here is very familiar with this story. And in this story, God, as fancy word, theophany, in other words, God, as this visible, whether it's an angel or it's human form or whatever it is, has come to visit Moses and Sarah, along with two others. And so these three men show up. Moses is sitting outside his tent one afternoon. Excuse me, I'm saying Moses because that's my next example. It's Abraham. Thank you. I'm ahead of myself up here. <laughs> Let me slow. I need to slow down. It's Abraham. Abraham is sitting outside his tent. These men show up. Abraham tells Sarah, go ahead and prepare a meal. They serve a meal, and then we're going to jump in in the story after the meal is complete, and they get up to leave. So understand, they've spent the afternoon visiting with these three strangers. And so they politely get up. They're ready to leave, and now they are going on for the next part of their journey. And starting in verse 16, it says, Then the men got up from their meal, and they looked out toward Sodom. And as they left, Abraham went with them to send them on their way. So you can think of this idea as Abraham's going to go walking for a little bit of a distance, and he's traveling along with these three men, and they're continuing to have conversation. And they're going on to the next spot in their journey, and he's just going to kind of wave them goodbye. But rather than just stand at the edge of his tent, wave them goodbye, he's going to walk with them for a little bit. And this is crazy. Keep in mind, the four of them are together. So the Lord turns, narratively speaking, probably to the other two and says, Should I hide my plan from Abraham? The Lord asked. Abraham's with them. It's not like Abraham can't hear this. For Abraham will certainly become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. Now, if my wife and I were sitting at the dinner table, and our children were there, and I turned to her and I said, do you think we should tell Desi what we're doing tomorrow? What kind of a conversation starter is that? As you do that because you're, what? Inviting conversation. You're expecting someone to say, what are we going to do tomorrow, right? So they're walking down the road, these four men, and the Lord turns to the other two and he says, should I hide my plan from Abraham? What do you think we're doing here? We're inviting conversation. I have singled him out so that he will direct his sons and their families to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. And then I will do for Abraham all that I have planned. And so the Lord told... Now he just turns to him directly. So the Lord told Abraham, I have heard a great outcry from Sodom and Gomorrah because their sin is so flagrant. And I'm going down to see if their actions are as wicked as I have heard. If not, I want to know. As if God doesn't already know what's going on there. But again, we're in conversation. So he's saying, hey, Abraham, I'm going to walk over here. I heard this bad report about this place. So I'm going to go check it out for myself. What do you think? 
The other men turned, and they headed toward Sodom. But the Lord remained with Abraham. The Lord remained with Abraham. Now two of them go on walking up ahead. He has just said, I'm headed toward Sodom. I want to go check this place out for myself. And then two of them keep walking towards Sodom. He stops and he pauses. What are we doing here? We're inviting conversation. I just want you to see. God has set up this scenario where he's waiting for Abraham to interject. He leaves the house and Abraham comes with him. He turns to his companions and said, should we tell Abraham what we're doing? They keep walking. God says, I'm going to go over here and check this out. What do you think about that? They keep walking. Then he stops and two more continue to journey on and now he's standing here waiting. What is he doing? He's inviting conversation. So Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away both the righteous and the wicked? Suppose you find 50 righteous people living there in the city. Will you still sweep it away and not spare it for their sakes? Surely you wouldn't do such a thing. Destroying the righteous along with the wicked? Why, you would be treating the righteous and the wicked exactly the same. Surely you wouldn't do that. Should not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Abraham's buttering him up. Abraham's trying to get on God's good side. He's like, are you sure you want to do this, God? I mean, you, you wouldn't really do something like that, would you? But who started the conversation? It was God. And the Lord replied, If I find 50 righteous people in Sodom, I will spare the entire city for their sake. Then Abraham spoke again. Since I've begun, let me speak further to my Lord, even though I am but dust and ashes. Suppose, suppose there are 45 righteous people rather than 50. Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five? Now, at this point in the story, how many of you already know Abraham never had 50 people in mind? Right? This is bargaining techniques. We know this. Okay? Don't you think God knows this too? And who started the conversation? Who's standing around waiting to see what Abraham's going to do? It's God. And the Lord said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 righteous people right there. For the parents in the room, have you ever been with your child in a store and they come over and they've got a toy or a candy or something in their hand and they just want to talk to you about it, right? They're not going to ask you to buy it. They just want to have a conversation about this thing they noticed in the store. And you see this coming miles and miles away and you know where this conversation is headed. But for the sake of dialogue, you let your child describe this object to you and what they think about it and they just happen to notice it on the shelf over there and does this sound familiar yes. this is what's going on with God right now he's like so Abraham I'm going over here what do you think about that oh God what if there were 50 people I'm just like okay I'd, I'd let it go for 50 people well what about 45 I'd let it go for 45 then Abraham pressed his request further S suppose there were only 
40. And the Lord replied, I will not destroy it for the sake of 40. Please don't get angry, Lord, Abraham pleaded. Let me speak. This is what he's been doing the whole time. <laughs> Let me speak. Suppose only 30 righteous people are found. And the Lord replied, I will not destroy it if I find 30. Then Abraham said, Since I have dared to speak to the Lord, let me continue. You get the humor when you slow down? Very familiar. I said, What's he been doing the whole time? Who started the conversation? It was the Lord. Suppose there are only 20. And the Lord replied, Then I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. I don't know how long of a pause there was between verse 31 and 32, but I think there was a pause. Finally, Abraham said, Lord, please don't be angry with me if I speak just one more time. Suppose only 10 are found there. And the Lord replied, then I will not destroy it for the sake of ten. And when the Lord had finished his conversation with Abraham, he went on his way, and Abraham returned to his tent. Now you can keep reading in Genesis. Again, we're very familiar with this story. And unfortunately, there are not even ten righteous people between the two cities, and so they are destroyed. That's not my point tonight. The point tonight is this rather odd negotiation that takes place between Abraham and God, where on the surface at a first glance, it looks like Abraham bargains God down from 50 to 10 people. It's like, hey, good job, Abraham. You convinced God to go from 50 down to 10 people. If there were 10 righteous people, he'd let that place live. But if you look closer, like I've just been pointing out, God invited himself to lunch. Then got up and left, and Abraham came along. Then God turned to his companion and said, Do you think we should tell Abraham what we're going to do this afternoon? <laughs> then he tells Abraham. Then he asks Abraham for his opinion. And then Abraham begins to barter. Who was in control of this dialogue the entire time? Who set the whole thing in motion? Absolutely. Absolutely. And this isn't a case where Abraham has somehow convinced God to change his mind. This isn't a case where Abraham has somehow successfully negotiated with the creator of the universe and talked him down from 50 to 10. God knew where this was headed right from the beginning. He set the entire scenario up. And then he invited Abraham into conversation with him, into discourse. And what fascinates me is God seems amused by this. Right? He's delighted by this. Because he keeps kind of goading it on. If he didn't want to talk to Abraham, he wouldn't have set all that up. If he wasn't expecting Abraham to do this kind of negotiation, he would have stopped the conversation when Abraham asked the first time. Well, what if there are 50 righteous people? But instead we get a what if, what if, what if, what if, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. And Abraham thinks he's doing really good. And the creator of the universe 
is talking to a child negotiating over that toy train in the store. And the whole thing has been set up the entire time. What is this story showing us? God wants that discourse. He invites us into dialogue with him. And not only that, God is okay with us, for a lack of a better word, negotiating with him. God is okay with us saying, well, God, what about this? And what about that? And would you consider this? And he's not upset by it. Now, how many of us typically, when we have something with God, approach it quite this way? Probably not. It almost seems irreverent that the man who described himself as but dust and ashes is speaking to the creator of the cosmos and he's negotiating with him. God set it up the entire time. That was the whole point, was to create an opportunity for Abraham to have this kind of dialogue with him. Let's go to another example. We're going to jump forward now. Genesis 28. We're going to go to Abraham's grandson, Jacob. Now, in Genesis 27, Jacob has completely deceived his father. He has cheated his brother out of his birthright and blessing. He's a thief. Don't miss that. He's a thief. And after all of this takes place, his father says it's an irrevocable blessing. He says, I'm not going to take it back. Isaiah, uh, Isaac, excuse me. Isaac says it stands. He gives a minor blessing to Esau, and Esau is furious. And Esau says, in essence, to his brother, you just wait till dad dies. Once he's out of the picture, I'm going to kill you. And Jacob is terrified. And Mama hears this, and keep in mind, Mama's the co-conspirator in all of this. So Mama goes and talks to her husband and says, don't let him marry someone here. Move him off. Send him out of the way. And so they send their son away to protect him from his brother who is furious and has already publicly declared that he is going to kill Jacob once dad's out of the picture. So Jacob is on the run. The thief has now left home. He doesn't have anything except what he's traveling with, literally the clothes on his back. And he stops for the night. Meanwhile, Jacob left Beersheba and traveled toward Haran. And at sundown, he arrived at a good place to set up camp, and he stopped there for the night. And Jacob found a stone to rest his head against, and he lay down to sleep. And as he slept, he dreamt of a stairway, if you're reading King James, it may say ladder, that reached from the earth up into heaven. And he saw the angels of God going up and down on the stairway, and at the top of the stairway stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your grandfather Abraham, and the God of your father Isaac, and the ground you are lying on belongs to you. I am giving it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. They will spread out in all directions, to the west and to the east, and to the north, and to the south, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. He's on the run for his life. He is a thief. He has deceived his parents, more specifically his father. 
He is shamed. He's, in essence, going into exile to protect himself. And the God of the universe speaks to him in a dream and makes this plain to him and says, I'm going to bless you and you're going to prosper. And I'm going to give you all the land you're walking through right now. And you will have so many descendants, it'll be innumerable. And what's more, I am with you and I will protect you wherever you go. And one day, I will bring you back to this land and I will not leave you until I have finished giving you everything I have promised you. And then Jacob awoke from his sleep. And before I go farther in that verse, let's just pause here. He's on the run. He's stopping for the night. He goes to sleep. He has a dream. And in this dream, he has a heavenly vision and God speaks to him. Who initiates this conversation? God. What kind of a worthy position is Jacob in right now? He's not. He's, he's on the run. He's a thief. This is not a righteous individual. Notice the passage says, I am the God of your grandfather and your father. It did not say, I am your God. Because he's not at this point. Jacob does not have a relationship with God. And yet this God, who his daddy and his grandpa serve, has showed up to him and spoken directly to him in a vision and has promised blessings on him. And then I love his reaction because I think we go too fast and we clean up these passages. He's still acting like a con artist. He's still a thief. He's still Jacob the trickster because watch his response when he wakes up. Then Jacob woke up from his sleep and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I wasn't even aware of it. But he was also afraid and said, What an awesome place this is. It is none other than the house of God, the very gateway into heaven. And so the next morning Jacob got early and he took the stone he had rested his head against and he set it upright as a memorial pillar and then he poured olive oil over it. And he named the place Bethel, which means the house of God, although it was previously called Luz. And Jacob made this vow. He does not have a personal relationship, if you will, with God at this point. This is his daddy's God. This is his grandpa's God. And this is the vow he makes. If. We start with an if statement. He's speaking to the creator of the universe. And he starts with conditions. And he gives God five conditions. As if he's in a place to bargain. As if he's in a place to negotiate. He's on the run for his life. And the creator of the universe has just stopped and talked to him and promised to bless him. And his response is, if God will indeed be with me, and if God will protect me on this journey, and if he will provide me with food and with clothing, and if I return safely to my father's home, then the Lord will certainly be my God. Ta-da! Look at me. Aren't I such a good person? Creator of the universe just spoke to me in a dream, and my response is, okay, God, let's talk. We're going to make a deal here. I need you to do this, 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 and this for me. And so if you will meet these five conditions that I'm laying down before you, I will let you be my God. I will let you protect me. 
I will let you provide for all of my needs. Wow, how generous of Jacob. And so Jacob the deceiver, Jacob the liar, Jacob the trickster is still acting the same way. Who started the conversation? God. And does God strike him with a lightning bolt? No. Here's the crazier part of this story. God agrees to these conditions. God starts the conversation. And Jacob does not come back with what I would consider an appropriate amount of reverent fear. He recognizes he's in the presence of God, and that gets his attention. He's a little scared, but he's not scared enough just to say whatever you want, God. He's, he's still got enough of his own chutzpah, if you will, to come before the creator of the universe and say, okay, let's make a deal. <laughs> I need you to protect me, and I need you to travel with me, and I need food, and I need clothing, and I need you to guarantee my safe return one day. And if you will do all of these things, I will let you be my God. And then as the cherry on top, here's my favorite. And this memorial pillar I have set up will become a place of worshiping God, and I will present a uh, to God a tenth of everything that he gives me. He says, you meet all these conditions, I will let you be my God. And I'll throw in tithing, by the way. I'll pick that up too. I'll start tithing. Do you see how ridiculous this really is, right? God's okay with this. That's what's crazier in this passage. God agrees to these terms that Jacob puts before him. This ant, tiny dust moat of an existence who has royally messed up his own life and is now on the run for his life because his brother's going to kill him, has just encountered the God of the universe and says, tell you what, God, you do this and this and this and this for me, I'll call you mine. And I'll throw in tithing because I'm feeling generous today. And God accepts it. God's okay with these terms and says, you got a deal, son. I can work with that. What do we see in this example again? We see another place where God has invited Jacob into conversation with him. And as broken and as messed up, quite frankly, as selfish and as conniving as Jacob still is, God takes it. God says, I'll, I'll accept it. Come walk with me. Come talk to me. And he invites Jacob into a conversation. And he's okay with Jacob negotiating with him. He's okay with Jacob in his broken state continuing to try and barter and finagle a better deal for himself. Now let's go to a third example. Again, famous passage. Exodus chapter 3. Moses is now a grown man. To be more precise, he's 80 years old, or at least about to turn 80. And he's living on the backside of a desert. He's been there for 40 years, living in exile, hiding out from the nation that he ran away from, thinking he's about as remote as he could possibly get. One day, Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock far into the wilderness 
In other words, he's way out there in the middle of nowhere. And he came to Sinai, the mountain of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. And Moses stared in amazement. Okay, so you're in the middle of nowhere. It's the desert. And on this hillside, you see a bush. And the bush catches on fire. That might get your attention. But it says, Moses stared in amazement. Why? Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. How does he know the bush didn't burn up? I'm not being silly. This is what I'm talking about reading slow. You can't make that discernment in two seconds. So Moses has been watching this for a little while. This bush is on fire. And it's still on fire. And it's still on fire. And it's still on fire. And nothing's happening. And now it has his attention. Because he's wondering, that's really weird. What's going on here? How come the bush didn't burn up? This is amazing, Moses says to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go see it. Moses is in the middle of nowhere, and all of a sudden, off to the left or the right, this bush explodes into flames. And then he watches it, and it doesn't burn up, 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 and he says, you know what? I think I'm going to go check that out. Once again, who has initiated the conversation? God. How is he getting Moses' attention? In a pretty miraculous way. I mean, this is the equivalent of today, God screaming in bright neon lights with a loud blaring horn saying, I'm over here! Look this way! <laughs> Moses didn't accidentally wander into God's presence. God was screaming at him, Hey! Right here! Look over here! And Moses says, I'm going to go check that out. So he changes course. And he starts traveling towards this bush to see what's going on. And when the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, as if he didn't know that was going to happen, God called out to him from the middle of the bush, Moses! Moses! There we go. Here I am, Moses replied. So now Moses is talking to the bush that's not burning up. This story just gets better and better. This one's a great one. Now Moses is talking to the bush that's not burning up. Do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the one of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And when Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. Now, he wasn't afraid a moment ago. He was very curious. He's changed course and started walking towards this bush that's burning with this eternal flame. And now, God begins to speak to him out of the bush. And when he realizes whose presence he's in, now he's afraid. But up to this point, God has been waving his hands, in essence, saying, Hey, over here, come look, come talk to me. 
Then the Lord told him, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. It is a land flowing with milk and honey, the land where the Canaanites and Hittites and Amorites and Pezzarites and Hevites and Jebusites and all the other ites, 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 ites. It's where all the ites live. Look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me, and I have seen how harshly the Egyptians abuse them. Now go, for I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people Israel out of Egypt. And I bet up till that sentence, Moses was thinking, wow, this is amazing. And now he's probably thinking, nope, not that. Because <laughs> this is where he ran away from 40 years ago. And God has his attention and says, I'm sending you back. And I want you to lead my people out. Moses knows that he is in the presence of the creator of the universe. This is so sacred. God says, take your shoes off. Stand here bare. Moses hides his face from God. And God speaks these commands. This miraculous voice. I don't think it was a whisper at this point. I know I'm reading into the text there, but I really, really doubt it was a whisper coming out of this burning bush at this point. So I'm imagining this is a pretty phenomenal spectacle, and it has all of Moses' attention. But Moses protested. But Moses protested to God, who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? And God struck him with a lightning bolt. No. There's your automatic yes response. I gotcha. <laughs> God does nothing. God invites him into conversation once again. Creator of the universe just gave him a command and he says, wait, not me. Who am I to appear before Pharaoh? And God answered, I will be with you. And this is your sign that I am the one who has sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God at this very mountain. But Moses protested. If I go to the people of Israel and I tell them the God of your ancestors has sent me, they will ask me, what is his name? Which is probably a fair question. What is his name? Then what should I tell them? And God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And I stopped right there. The passage keeps going through all of Exodus chapter 3 and Exodus chapter 4. And it's an incredible passage. And, and we have Moses and, and we stick our hand inside the robe and pull it out. And we have leprosy and we stick it back in. Then we throw our staff on the ground and it turns into a snake. And then he picks it up by the tail, which is insane. You don't grab a snake by the tail, but he grabs a snake by a tail, and then when he picks it up, it turns back into us. So God is doing all these miraculous things as he's having this conversation with Moses. But don't miss the point. The entire time Moses is arguing with God, and that's another sermon for a different night, but you go back and read it, and at least five times the text says, but Moses argued, or Moses pleaded, or Moses protested. 
And so back and forth, back and forth, Moses is negotiating with God until finally he throws up his hands, if you will, and he says, I'm not a good speaker. God says, fine, your brother can go with you. And it says, at that point, the Lord is angry with him. God has done multiple miracles right in front of him to demonstrate who he is and that he's going to try. And he keeps saying, I'm going with you, Moses. You don't have to do this by yourself. And Moses keeps coming back with more buts. And what about this? And I can't do that. And there's got to be somebody else. Can't you pick someone? I, I can't speak well. And I'm terrible with words. And I get flustered when I'm in public. And on and on and on and on. And he's arguing with God. And God is okay with this. Not only is God okay with this, God started the conversation. In our first example tonight, God invites himself to lunch at Abraham's tent. In our second example, Jacob the thief, Jacob the liar, Jacob who's running for his life, gets a special dream from God. And God shows him the doorway into his heavenly home. And then speaks to him and says, I'm with you and I'm going to bless you. And then Jacob cuts a deal with God. You meet these five conditions, I'll throw in tithing, I'll let you be my God, we'll be good. And God agrees to this. Now Moses is hiding out in the middle of nowhere on the backside of a desert, and God explodes a bush into flames to get his attention. And then it doesn't burn up, and he invites Moses over to talk to him. And then he gives Moses commands, and Moses comes back with excuse after excuse after excuse after excuse. Go read Exodus chapter 3 and chapter 4 later this week, and you'll see it. And he keeps coming back with, what about this, and what about that, and I don't think I can do this, and God is okay with it. And in all three of these examples, God initiates the conversation. And God invites these men into discourse with him. He wants them to speak to him. And their negotiations are pathetic. They're feeble. And they're speaking to the God of the universe. And he set it up. And he started it. And he welcomed them into the conversation because he wanted to communicate with them. Now, there's another word for all of this, and I have purposely left it out up to this point. I've talked about discourse. I've talked about negotiations. I've talked about conversation. I've used the word communicate. Here's another simple word for it, and this is where we miss the simple part. You know what we also call that, my brothers and sisters? Prayer. Prayer is a conversation between you and God. That's it. And often we make prayer into something complex and more difficult than it has to be. And we're not the only ones who struggle with this because you can jump to the New Testament and you see Jesus with the disciples and they pull him aside and they say, teach us to pray. We want to get better at this prayer thing because prayer is, you know, Prayer is this thing out there in the ether that's super special and highly spiritual. And it's something hallowed righteous people do. They commune with God. They pray. 
But go back and read your Bible. Most of the time, as you go and look at these stories and these examples in the Bible, God starts the conversation. Sometimes very dramatically to get their attention, like with Moses. And he invites them to talk to him. And they're broken, and they're scared, and they're running away, and they argue with him, and they're trying to negotiate, and he's okay with it. And I don't know who, but somebody needed to hear this tonight. God just wants you to talk to him. And he's inviting you into conversation. And there may be times where you speak to him. And it is this incredible, holy, hallowed, sacred experience. I'm not saying that doesn't happen. But if we're fair, when we look at the scriptures, when we read these stories, most of the time, they're pretty normal conversations with very broken people who God initiates the conversation and they respond. And pretty much however they respond, he's okay with starting there. It's the fact that they responded. And so God invites us into prayer and he wants to talk to all of us. Doesn't have to be complicated and it doesn't have to be difficult. And as you stand with me as I'm coming to a close tonight, I'm encouraged when I read the scriptures. And these are just three examples. We could have done this for the next few weeks. We could have picked dozens of examples out of the scriptures. And you would see over and over and over through these examples how God invites people to speak to him. And he just wants them to respond. And wherever they're at, in whatever state they're in, if they will just start talking to him, he'll take it from there. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much.